Hey everyone, my name is Blair Sinta, and today I'm Ben's guest on the Big Fat Five. What up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum, where my guests break down the five records that shape them into the players they are today. Today's guest is Blair Sinta. Blair's drumming resume includes touring and or recording with Alanis Morissette, Ringo Starr, Annie Lennox, Gwen Stefani, Stevie Nicks, Chris Cornell, John Fogarty, Dave Stewart. I mean, that's basically everyone, right? He's based out of Los Angeles and runs his own studio where he records himself for artists, records other drummers for artists, runs live lessons, records online courses, and talks to meandering podcast hosts like myself. Also, go check out his own podcast called Recording Drums with Blair Sinta. He's chatted with some monster players, but make sure you still like my show more than his. All right, cheers. So first of all, obviously, you're, uh, the list of artists you've worked with is uh, freaking extensive. So, But since it's a drumming podcast, uh, one name stands out, which is Ringo Starr. How did that whole thing come about, and, and what did you learn from him? Yada, yada, yada. Well, I, I never actually met Ringo, unfortunately. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> well, anyways. Um, <laughs> yeah, my friend Sam Hollander, uh, producer, called me one day. Hey, man, are you busy? No, no, he texted me. He texted me. And he said, hey, are you around? And I said, yes. He said, how long are you around? I said, well, I'm going to uh, Yosemite with my family tomorrow. He goes, can you record something tonight? And I said, sure. He goes, it's Ringo. <laughs> this is all in text. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I was like, as in star? <laughs> like, <laughs> and uh, he was like, no, yes. Ringo Smith. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um... Literally about three hours later, I had recorded a track. He had sent it over, and and that was it. It's a tune on his record that came out just about a year ago. Oh, it's wow. called uh, "Teach Me to Tango." Okay. And I don't, I, frankly, I don't know. If I should talk details about it, but don't he's worry, in yeah. there. He's in there, and I'm in there. He, but I ended up in there a little more than I thought I would in in a good way. But long story short, like I. I asked Sam, I was like, dude, you have to get me a, a autographed picture. Just like, please, like, never happened. <laughs> well, didn't he, like, two years ago, he made a whole thing. He's like, hey, I'm not doing any more autographs, blah, blah, blah. But I guess oh, if you're honest, he? I think so. He made, like, a little oh. video. Well, I mean, you're obviously different. You recorded drums with his <laughs> yeah. record. But it's like, I think yeah. he was just getting, it was like a full-time job for him. Because I think before that, he was pretty open with where you can send stuff and he'll sign it, yeah. I think. But um, so don't feel that bad. He also denied I, everyone else. <laughs> I, I mean, look, man, I got I, I have a paste up with his name on it. So I'm happy. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> Did you try and channel him or were you like, I got to do my own thing? No, no, fully. I went, okay. I set up my well, he, here's here. If you want some backstory, here's some crazy backstory. I do. Yes. In 2007, I was recording at my friend Zach Ray's studio with my band. It's called Pedestrian. And Dave Stewart was working on, was producing a Ringo record at that time. And Zach was hired to play keyboards uh, on the record. So we, we had literally finished tracking one day with Pedestrian. And Ringo was coming in the next day for, for 
Zach to play keyboards. And my 65 Ludwigs were at the studio that we were just working on, just using. And we thought, hey, I was like, what? Can I just leave my drums here, man? And we'll set them up in the corner. And I had, I have like two old 60s, you know, 20 inch cymbals, you know, like, like totally legit 15 inch, you know, legit hi hats. And we set them up off in the corner. And sure enough, I'm sitting in the movie theater the next day and I get a text from Zach and he says, your drums now have some mojo. And I was like, holy shit. Apparently he walked in, he goes, oh, I used to have some of these. And he sat down and he just played mm-hmm. for like two minutes. He just played. And that was it. And this is like kind of pre-iPhone. There's no picture. There's no actual legitimate proof. But, you know. I think it's better that um, way. Yeah. But I literally recorded the tracks that track with the same drums in here. So I set them up and I went, I, I did do like a bit of Ringo miking, but I, I mean, you know, you know, Beatle esque miking, yeah. but I also, you know, you know, it wasn't my call on too much how it would sound. It was like, make it like this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know, there were fills there and I fully like learned the fills and you know, I, I Ringoed out for sure. Yeah. Did you, <laughs> what'd you do with the heads that he played on? Do you still have those? Um, you know, I never, I never, uh, I never changed the heads on that kit. Like, there's no reason to. You know what I mean? Yeah, like no, hundred percent. Yeah, so they're probably the same heads. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, I mean, that's that's probably the best way to honor them. Just keep playing them like nothing ever happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so the drums. I mean, I thought that was pretty crazy that like those drums literally got played by him, and they ended up on a record too. So. Yeah, those yeah. some uh, some happy drums. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so before we get your top five, I do want to ask. So I guess this is a little more esoteric. So I apologize okay. if I'm making you really think on this one. But um, how do you ensure? Because obviously you have you have studio. You are very prolific. A lot of people want to work with you. How do you ensure that your choices, when they say just do your thing, are fresh and contemporary? Because um, obviously you've been doing this since the '90s. So there are things that maybe worked in the '90s that don't work now. How do you ensure, like, how do you navigate the world of making sure things aren't antiquated and dated? Are you, are you talking sonically or or playing style or or what both, are we talking about? Both, I guess. Like, you know, your your approach. I mean, how do you do? You consciously do it, or are you just ingesting enough stuff that's contemporary that give you references? You're like, I know this is what they want. Because um, yeah, I mean, there's sometimes I'll I'll do things and I'm like, God, dude, that's that would have worked in 2005 and it would have been awesome, but it's not working now. Let's reapproach it, you know? Right. Um, that's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, a lot of it's just communication, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I, I really try to over communicate doing the home studio thing because the last thing I want to do is have to redo things. hundred percent. Um, and sometimes things, uh, that should take three minutes. Like if you were in the sitting in the same room, you know, they take longer, but like if the snare sound is not right, I mean, I've had this happen a hundred times. Like I'm like, I'm like, I'm going to try to go for something different. And then I spend a bunch of time doing it and then I send it and they're like, uh, can you just do the fat thuddy snare? I'm like, Oh yeah, I knew it. But I was, I just didn't want to do that this time, but sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I try to over communicate and I definitely listen a lot. I think part of it is, you know, I first of all, I play how I play, right? So I try to play as kind of quote-unquote contemporary as possible. But at this mm-hmm. point, people call me for me, right? Sure. Um, but then uh, I think on the sonic side, I listen enough where I'm always just kind of analyzing 
Like, what is this? What is that? You know, and I'm, I would say I'm fairly quick at this point of, you know, when somebody references something, I can kind of go like, okay, I think this is the right uh, drum or approach or miking style or symbols or whatever mm-hmm. to get, to get in the, in the contemporary ballpark, you know? Yeah. I mean, your stuff always sounds great. That's why I asked because, um, and yeah, I guess the answer probably is just like, it kind of happens without realizing it, you know, just as you get older, as music changes, as you listen, it's just kind of, you grow with it and you keep a little bit about who you are, but you just kind of subconsciously realize, well, this is probably not what they want. And, and yada, I mean, because you also have your, your online course, Improve Your Groove, and it could be as simple as just, you know, minding those principles at the core, and then at that point, things are timeless, you know, like yeah. rhythm's timeless, there's certain rules. Yeah, and, 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 and at a certain point, it like, also, and I don't, I don't know if I've actually ever done this, but if somebody wants like a super choppy, chopsy, gospel choppy thing, like, I'm not the guy. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it's not gonna happen. Like I can fake, I can fake a lot of things, but like there's certain things that are just not gonna happen. But like, you know, things if something needs like trap hats or whatever, like that, that you know, maybe it's an overdub to really mm-hmm. get it right or what? You know what I mean? Like there are ways to get it done. Yeah. Um, you know. Sure. And and these days everything is super dry sonically, like crazy dry. So that's part of it too. It's like don't. Don't send something with a bunch of roomy ambient things when it that's not going to be the right call. It's just I don't know, basic things like that, right? You know, sure. but I think you hit it on the head. It's like, you know, time, groove, play the right beat for the tune. Yeah. I mean, I guess I always and <laughs> yeah. I, I I preface this which I am I'm am friends with art from Everclear, so I don't mean this in a bad way, but there's there's like the boom tat boom boom tat that's in like every other everclear mm-hmm. song whenever i hear that bass yes. drum pattern i go to a certain thing and i'm like okay mm-hmm. i'm not going to do that right now but then it's like if i do and then you hear it on two songs on the radio then already it's contemporary again so it's just like mm-hmm. sometimes you just have to make choices and be like i don't know it works for the part so you know screw everything else in my head of what i'm trying to convince myself not to do you know what i mean but well didn't he have like six massive hits all that were all basically the same song exactly. i mean like i mean i mean that sarcastically but also like for sure that guy yeah. was massive yeah with a bunch of songs that were very similar so good for and him he still headlines summerland and right. i mean <laughs> exactly. it sells out all the time yeah, yeah. if it um, works it works yeah exactly yeah. Uh, so uh, I did want to talk about your podcast, Recording Drums, the Blair Senta, and you just started season two. So for people that aren't aware, um, please listen to it. Um, some of my Thank favorite you. drummers are on it. Uh, you're a great host. And what, uh, yeah, just talk a little bit about that for people that might not know what Recording Drums is, the podcast. Well, I, the angle is that it's um, it's really just talking about you know drummers who well the idea originally was drummers who have home studios and work out of home studios and then it just kind of expanded to like just great recording drummers and i just really try to keep it in that in that lane like we're only talking about like approach or certain stories they've had um or or career paths like especially you know guys that are little like my age or maybe a little older who who actually worked in like legit studio era 90s or whatever and had to transition to home studio stuff um you know but it 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 ends up covering you know 
a lot of ground, but it always is specific to recording. And it's always fascinating to talk to like percussionists that do a lot of film and the way they do things because that's a whole different approach. Mm-hmm. And then guys like Adam Criscow, who you know, who's doing a lot of woodworking, but you know, he has like a massive space and he's put his drums in there and now he's working I, in there. Yeah. He's doing soundtracks. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's people have the craziest stories. Uh, people who have like garages in London or actual real spaces you know so it's pretty fascinating the way everybody seems to be getting it done and it it just it centers around that recording drums you want to know about recording drums check out the podcast if you don't then don't (laughs) (laughs) i'll bleep out what you really said um exactly right (laughs) yeah yeah hey y'all i wanted to (laughs) i can't say i wanted to talk to you about a drum i've recently received from preston at vessel drum co it's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum and it's incredible it's got a 1.5 millimeter shell brass shell with 10 lugs chrome over brass triple flange hoops a trick uh, three position strainer 42 strand wires it's lovely it's loud and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston, actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his, you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me use it on an Eve Six tour. And I didn't keep it and i regretted it ever since then just because i was trying to pinch pennies at the time and i just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye all right, so let's just hop into your your top five. And right. as I always say, I'm sure if I were to, you know, fast forward two weeks and send you a new list, it would be totally different. So, dude, this was really hard. I'm sure everybody says that. I was like, really, only five? Oh, okay, I know. It, it goes two different directions. They go, wow, Ben, that was like a therapy session. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is, screw you, Ben. This was the hardest thing I've ever had to do, yeah. Yeah. and it ruined my afternoon. So, um, right. But all right, let's just go to the first one. And this one made me laugh because the album is, uh, it's called 1984 by Van Halen, and it came out in 1983. And the song choice, Drop Dead Legs, comes right before a song that I'm sure everyone knows, which is Hot for Teacher. But right. uh, I will save my opinion for that song till after we listen to this one. But let okay. me just play it, and then we can kind of talk about uh, about Van Halen and, of, of course, Alex. So here we go.
I mean, the snare sound, right? So good. I mean, I was always trying to get that snare sound as a kid. Yeah. Like, like, like watching videos and, and like the live without a net video, and he had like a triangle. It looks like electrical tape, and I was like, "That's got to be how to get that sound." So I always my crappy Tama snare drum. Actually, it was a really good drum, but trying to get that yeah. sound. Yep. Yeah, I've seen. Uh, was it um, Rick Beato has a whole video where he like yep. does the tape underneath it and then puts yep. the head on it. It's like yep. The thing underneath is key. Because you got to get it a little like uh, Tommy in a way, like like you got to take some of that high end off. He just has a for me he has like he encompasses Bonham but a more modern. I mean you know they were contemporaries in a sense, but like a harder edge Bonham and it was kind of like for me it was like the gateway to Zeppelin you know. But I just see, he always has amazing parts. Amazing parts. And the way he, he builds tunes, and the riding, the crash cymbal thing, which, like, was a mystery to me for, like, a long time. But that was, like, pre-Grohl, like, you know, playing the shit out of the crash cymbal. It it was, like, just playing the, the like, a crash cymbal like a ride cymbal, but it was just, like, that shit that sizzle yeah, happening. Just this, uh, yeah, top forest, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was just like, always oh, like, what is happening there? Yeah, I think, I think with, uh, with, with Van Halen, uh, one of my closest friends, and also a friend of your podcast, and I'm sure you as a person, Gunnar Olsen, he mm-hmm. loves Van Halen. And so I mm-hmm. think it's one of those, like, I won't let myself get into it because I love the fact that I'm like, I don't really know much about Van Halen and it always frustrates him. Um, <laughs> When he was on the, he's been on my, my podcast a few times, and it's basically uh-huh. like I say the kills or leave on helm uh-huh. as buzzwords. And if you were to, you know, hear or take a shot every time he says Van Halen, you right. we, two two blacked out people listening to the podcast. But right, um, right, okay. <laughs> but yeah, no, that that um, I, I listened to this record a bunch before we came on, and. I feel bad because I always told people that I didn't like Alex's drum sound because I I can't and I'm probably going to lose half the audience here but I can't <laughs> I can't I cannot listen to the intro to Hot for Teacher. I think those drum sounds that intro and I'm sure it's 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 gimmicky the the part in and of itself is gimmicky and Alex is probably like come on I was having fun with that one but it's just I can't that intro I just can't listen to. It like actually like makes me uncomfortable. But the wow. but but the other song we just listened to uh that sounds great. That sounds great. Well, I mean, here's the thing about him. He was like every tour was a new kit, right? And he was always experimenting. And that was that was the, um, you know, the probably the Simmons bass drums, right? Yeah. With roto-toms and a real snare. And like, like he had these kind of weird Bruford-y like concoctions to his kit. You know, Octobon, Simmons drums, and like, you know, his, his snare sound was always there. So, yeah. It's funny. I've never heard somebody say that about Hopper Teacher. That's kind of awesome. <laughs> it's kind of awesome. I don't get it. I won't say I get it because yeah, I don't I, get I that. But yeah. <laughs> but I just I like the fact how he was always just like I'm I'm doing this. You mm-hmm. know I'm trying this thing. You know. And do those bass drums sound good? No. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no. Obviously, I I there's very little. 
I mean, I, I take back how how uh, how poignant I was on that because I really do try and find the best in any kind of music because obviously Van Halen people love them, um, mm. and I need to go down the rabbit hole of listening to them. But uh, I do like the fact that you equated him uh, to a little more contemporary Bonham, which is I totally hear that, especially in that he's just laying back on that oh. snare, you know. I think that's the thing about him. He has like kind of crazy fusiony chops, you mm-hmm. know, like great fingers, but then he can just sit back and a lot of that stuff like especially live like there was like sequenced keyboard parts and he wasn't playing to a click he was just like sitting in with like sequenced keyboards that mm-hmm. are blasting through his monitors so he has amazing time you know and yeah. a great great feel so yeah and you might have already said this but how old were you when you when you found this record uh well it would have been like 11 and you were you were already playing drums at that point I was just getting into it. My brother, okay. my brother, who's a, eighteen months older than me, might have bought that record. Mm-hmm. But it was definitely MTV was like such a thing that even if I didn't own the record, you know, those videos were out, and I was watching those videos, and it was like, and then it's about right, yeah. And then when I what? So in junior high, I would have been like twelve. I would have been twelve in seventh grade, and that's when I joined a band. And the guitar player, of course, was a Eddie Van Halen freak, and it was like full on, you know. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, moving a few years further, uh, Moving Pictures, 1987, by the band Rush. But Wait, did uh, I write Moving Pictures? You did. Yes. Oh, okay, I messed up. No worries. <laughs> no. That's the cool thing about editing. So uh, okay. So what? Uh, which which album do you want to play? Okay. So this it makes sense. All right. So here's the thing. When okay. I was again a similar aged uh, thirteen. Okay. I was played moving pictures by my cousin. Okay. Th- which is why I wrote that. Sure. And of course, that was like, like you know, holy shit, Neil Peart, you know. Ab- absolutely. The record that came out that year was called Hold Your Fire. Okay. Um, yep. Which is a Got red right cover with three red dots. Okay. And then there's a tune called, I think I wrote down this tune called Turn the Page. Turn the Page, yep. Yep. All right, so you know, I actually might keep that in just so you can tell that chronological yeah, order. Yeah. Um, so right, the, the, the album is "Hold Your Fire," came out in '87, and mm-hmm. uh, this is the song "Turn the Page." Okay. reason i picked this one is because this was the album that rush released kind of like the year that i learned about them and the first time i saw them live so i was probably i was listening to moving pictures but then this record came out and i was just like that was i would imagine this is probably at least favorite record of a lot of rush fans but for me because it was like the one that came out that year and that when i saw them live like this is the one that blew my mind because I was discovering him, you know. Yeah, man, um, to see him in the '80s, that would have been amazing. Yeah, and I can, I literally can still see, like, sitting at Joe Louis Arena in Detroit and seeing, like, I can still just fucking exploding mind, right? Just like, like, oh my god, I'm in the same room as that guy, and like, you know, my parents say that like they thought I was deaf when I came home because the whole next day I like didn't didn't talk because I was just like. I was just processing, yeah. 
Is that a bass or a guitar? I can't tell. That's a bass. Yeah. Yep. Lead bass, man. <laughs> This is like a. This record was like a conscious effort to have more guitars back in the band and a little less keyboards. It's definitely '80s slick, man. Verb. The snare sound is kind of amazing, though. Super cranked and bright. Very roomy. Oh, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> Probably one of the few drum breaks that I could actually play. Like, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, yeah. oh, I can wrap my head around that one. <laughs> yeah. Crazy, but still approachable, for sure. Yes. Again, this is going to sound sacrilegious, and I'm not saying okay. in any way. <laughs> I hate on. Neil Perkson. No. Um, he sounds a lot... Uh, tighter on that record and like i think the reason why i love tom sawyer basically moving pictures in general is because you can hear a little bit maybe more of his humanity um and i hope people listening know what i mean by that this one seems like i mean it's just it almost sounds like it was quantized which obviously it wasn't but uh going back to me saying it just sound like a cleaner recording um but that's that's sick i'll 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 wade into those waters to help you out please Um, (laughs) thank god I just uh, my my thing with with him is that I mean it was always about the parts and the giant drum kit and I mean just you know creating something amazing right it was never really about the feel right but I do think that like throughout the 80s or into the early 90s and then right before all the bad shit started to happen to him he was like he sounded really good and my my opinion is that after his like all the tragic stuff when he came back and he took that time off he never quite got back to that and obviously i say that you know again i make it blasted for that but that's just how i feel about it you know what i mean because i do think like like i actually think stuff feels pretty good on like moving pictures early 80s you know and that stuff sounds super tight. He was probably playing to sequences and everything all the time and really, like, having to lock in. Again, I don't think they were listening to clicks then. I, You know, sometimes he would put on headphones in there. Anyway, that's kind of my opinion. Like, the later stuff is way looser, and I think that he gets a bad rap for the kind of 2000 to the end of the end of the rush career thing because it's it's just looser it's not like it was mm-hmm. no <laughs> thank you let's hold hands in the, uh, like uh, exactly you know drive yeah. off a cliff together yeah. so but you know i you know i can say that i mean i here's another thing i'll say this too okay. i was a massive neil fan through my childhood and then when i got into college and i started studying jazz and everything i totally went like oh fuck rush you know uh, Neil's not my thing, blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, I came back to it, you know, like in a more mature way going like, no, man, that guy was a massive influence on me and everybody and is an incredible drummer and created a, such an incredible thing, you know. Oh, absolutely. And I still, you can't see it in here, but I have the poster from my childhood is up in in, the, in my studio in my room so I can look up and see it. So, No, he's, uh, I, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast, is he's, the thing I definitely got most from him is just creating a motif 
And then yes. if you deviate from it, make sure that you always respect that motif that you've created mm-hmm. uh, as the song builds in dynamics. And he was he was the best at that. Um, mm-hmm. So to, to, to bookend the discussion on Neil, he is he's amazing and one of the yeah. best, if not the best for certain things. So mm-hmm. um, and I got to meet him one time and it was like an incredible it was amazing. Was it like a super stimulating conversation? He seemed like this, like the smartest guy in the world. I mean, he dove he he dove right into like talking about drums oh, and good. everything. Okay. And he was that he was sense. rehearsing for that last tour uh, up at DW, and uh, yeah, we rapped like hardcore for like fifteen minutes, and I I just felt like I should get out of here before like you know I like I know him or something you know. Yeah. And then I called my parents on the way home. I was like, oh, you'll never believe who I met. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. All right, so number three is Four and More. The release year is 1963, and the artist is Miles Davis. And you chose the song So What? And that is Tony Williams on the kit. So uh, maybe I can just play it, and we can just uh, talk yep. while, while Tony plays. So this is a live record. Yeah, this is a live record. So Tony's 17 on this record. God. Bastard. like brilliant yeah especially for the time this album sounds great too yeah i mean when you get good players you can make anything sound good i mean i could have picked any tune on this it's a double it's a double live album Mm -hmm. and it's just i mean it, it's I still beyond most jazz players ever. Yeah. Like he, between him and what and Herbie Hancock and the time modulations and all the things that happen on this record, it's just. Mm. He's just nasty, man. He just yeah. didn't give a fuck. He was just going for it. <laughs> Just that right there, you could teach a class on just that little five seconds. <laughs> the sound of that ride symbol. If you can, if you find video, which is pretty hard of this era, he's playing like pretty loud too. Really? Okay. I mean, you could you could kind of pick any. I I I'm kind of particular to like '60s era Tony mm-hmm. because his whole style evolved. And like ne- the recording Nefertiti, the recording 
that was kind of like, well, do I pick that one or this one? But this one comes, this one I always come back to because, like, the amount of ideas coming out of him that yeah. you can just go like, oh, I'm just going to pick that two bars and just, like, spend a day, you know, working on that thing. At 17, how do you have that, how do you control or have that much facility on a, of a language of an instrument at 17? Good for him. Well, man. and an original voice. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that's that's just that's like genius, you know. Um, and again, I'm sorry you might have said it, but maybe I was uh, zoning out listening to that. But how, how old were you when you came across this? Well, this would have been probably my freshman year of college, so 18. Okay, this is about the yeah. time you were you were mad at Neil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So this was like uh, I went to North Texas, and it was like okay, learn how to play jazz. Uh, before that, I was like into you know fusion, Weckl. Dennis, sure. Vinny, but this was like, oh, right, okay. Uh, and, you know, diving into that record is not, diving into, you know, early Tony Williams is not the best idea to learn how to play swing either, because that's... <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, that was, the, that was, that was kind of like um, a gateway for me to kind of, I don't know, uh, liking, like, traditional jazz. You know what I mean? Because before that, I was like, ah, eh, you know, I don't know. Yeah, like totally. Old people's music, you know. <laughs> what What did you go to school for? What was your degree? Uh, I have a bachelor's in jazz uh, performance. Okay. The most worthless degree known to man. Yeah. <laughs> Hell no, man. It made you, I mean, is that is that why you were introduced to? I mean, this might be a dumb question. But is that why you started listening to Tony? Was it like your classmates were like, "Oh, you're in jazz performance and you don't know Tony," or what? Well, it was like at North Texas, especially in the early '90s. It could still be this way. It was like sink or swim. I mean, you you either could play jazz or you were. What, what are you doing there? I went there to become a a really good drummer. But the the path there was, you you play jazz like traditional jazz. You that's what you do, you know. Yeah. So yeah. Did you did you fight back on on, on that at all, or did you just go? Let me just. I'm gonna just jump into this head first and 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 really get to know this. I mean that's that's a good question because you know my father had tried to kind of like introduce me to, you know Art Blakey and even even Gad, before that. Or, you know, let's say, no, I shouldn't say Gad because I was into Gad, but like certain, maybe certain recordings of, of, of Gad. But like, um, I think when I got to school, there was a, there was a light switch of like, dude, you better get into this or you're, you're, you better go home. So it was literally me turning on, you know, kind of blue on my Walkman, my sports Walkman headphones and walking around campus and, and going like, okay. Time to figure this out because you got to learn to play like this. Yeah, so it was it was force feeding myself a bit, but now I probably listen to jazz as much as anything. Okay, actually. so you think looking back on it, you're like it was definitely for the better. No doubt, no doubt. I mean, that's I mean, I don't I wouldn't play how I play without those like four and a half super intense years of trying to swim in those waters, you know. Well, then there you go. It wasn't a useless degree. Well, the degree is useless. Well, the degree the is music, a piece of paper, but you the know, musical the, degree. <laughs> the musical education was not worthless. The degree. <laughs> okay. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Number four, right. uh, In the Jungle Groove, came out in uh, in 1986, and it's a compilation from 69 to 71 yep. of James Brown. 
and mm. the song choice is Talking Loud and Saying Nothing, which is yep. an awesome song title. And it's uh, it's Jabbo Starks yep. on drums. So let's just listen to that and then go from there. That's the whole thing. <laughs> you already heard it. I love those drums, by the way. Just that 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 crunchy, kind oh, of a man. little bit driven. Yep. Were you saying there was something he did? That's what you wanted to show, or is it uh, is it just because that he just no, plays just his feet? It's it's that's that's the pattern, man. He just rocks this. There's a little break in there that's like, you know, even funkier, but like this is the this is the groove, yeah. I mean, hey, if I had that feel, I wouldn't deviate from this either. <laughs> yeah. Also, knowing if I deviated, James would turn around and dock five dollars right. for my pay. So. Right. Right. Oh my God. That's that perfect rim shot where it has that little bit of like that little note that peeks out the top. Yeah. Sounds so good. Yeah. Mm. So I'm pretty sure that this is Jabo. It, it, there's a chance it's Clyde, but I'm pretty sure it's Jabo. Because I think Clyde did the more straight stuff and Jabo did yeah. the swingy stuff. Yeah. Yep. And this snare sound is just bonkers. It's ridiculous. Yeah. There's that little bit of do, 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 ah. It's like that little bit of hesitancy, hesitancy from the hi hat to when the snare hits. Yeah. And the left hand ghost note thing is just like propelling oh, yeah. the whole thing. And I was talking about this with uh, Brody Simpson, um, really respecting the one. He's obviously very consciously doing those backbeats a little bit ahead, or you know, behind. But he's that you can, you can tell that one is the anchor. I also like how, in this era, it's it feels heavy, but it's played very light. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, mm. Here's the break. This is the only re way I would maybe think it was it was Clyde uh, with that open hi-hat pattern. But that's... I don't know if they're playing enough to be able to have an opinion on it. because it reminds me of the cold sweat hi-hat pattern. Right, right. I also like in these recordings how like the kick drum is not heavy. Mm -hmm. You know, in person it may have sounded very different. It might have been like, you know, kick heavy. Sure. But these recordings are, are very top heavy because of the way they were recording things. So it's like whenever you play these grooves, if you play the kick drum too loud, it just feels weighty and not not right. 
good choices, man. These are fun songs. Thanks. This was a hard choice between uh, like a meters Zigaboo thing or this. Mm. Because at this time it was like I was listening to a lot of the Zigaboo, a lot of meters, and a lot of this record in particular. And just trying to like get this kind of swing into my playing. And I'm sure you talk about this on your courses, kind of um, just what you just said. It's just, which is how this sounds heavy, but once you start getting into this stuff, you realize how soft they play, and then you have so much headroom to compress and make it pumpy. Um, but that's a lot of things that younger drummers in their in their career don't realize that sometimes the softer, the heavier it is. Yeah, I mean, these guys were jazz drummers, right? Mm-hmm. And then they they got a gig with a backbeat, right? So they. They were just more handsy, right? Than than like putting putting the emphasis down below, like like we normally like any rock drummer would do now, you know. Um, it just the I don't know the lightness of the hands, the skipping just from playing jazz, like that's that's how these guys grew up playing, you know. So is it is it Jabo or is it Elvin maybe it's maybe it's Clyde with that famous picture of that maybe it's not famous I'm just thinking of a specific one of them putting nails in front of their bass drum do you know what oh, I'm talking about I know what you're talking about that's Elvin oh it is Elvin okay because yeah. I mean th- those guys I'm sure before they had to play heavier they're like I don't my bass drum never scoots away yeah. and then as they started to get you no know, uh, just time passed they're like oh crap <laughs> yeah I gotta do I mean, this now. You know, they. I mean, look, Elvin played loud, but it's it was yeah. like a different, um, different type of loud than now, right? Yeah, like totally. people who say Bonham played loud, he actually didn't play that loud comparatively to how how like modern drummers play loud. So yeah, yeah. Um, and so again, what what what? How, how old were you when you when this you know came into early, your life? Early twenties, probably eighteen, nineteen. Okay. Yeah. So, like, at the same time I started listening to jazz, I was listening to a lot of, like, funk like this, like, meters. Like, I remember having my mind blown my first semester of college and somebody playing me the meters for the first time, being like, oh, that exists? I never, I didn't know that was a thing in the world. (laughs) Do do you know a lot about um, Jabbo's history before James Brown? I mean, I know they're jazz drummers, but, like, are there recordings of him and Clyde doing things beforehand? Uh, there's got to be. There's got to be. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I just know I associate them immediately both with James, but it's like they, on those records, they're already professional, have a voice, kind of like we were talking about with Tony at that point. So yeah. I'm curious, you know, what their what their recorded history is. I don't know. It's fun. It's That's an interesting question. My friend uh, Jim White, who I went to school with, who's an incredible drummer um, and is kind of a historian on a lot of this stuff. You know, I don't know where either of those guys grew up, but they were... Obviously, they would have been playing locally if they made it into a studio. Who knows? You know? Sure, sure. Yeah. Interesting. Well, one more thing to look up while I'm uh, right. bored on the bus. So, and now for something completely different. <laughs> Here Speaking we go. of loud, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Evil Empire. It's actually funny. This was the song I chose. Uh, we'll be on the bus because I'm not sure if I mentioned it, but I'm on tour. And sometimes we just want to have nights. We drink wine and we just go off and like, well, you play a song, then you play a song, yeah. as, you know, after a good show. And yeah. I played this song and it was just one of those songs that everyone's like, oh, I haven't heard this song in like six years. Hell yeah. yeah. Uh, so this is Bulls on Parade. Uh, the album's Evil Empire. came out in 96. Uh, Brad Wilk on drums. The amazing Brad Wilk. Yep. And uh, it's, of course, Rage Against the Machine. So here is Bulls on Parade. 
I feel like he's kind of underrated. 100%. 100%. I mean, I don't hear a lot of people mention him. And even, I think I'm remiss about talking about, like, the kind of influence he had on me. Like, a lot. Because, um, where he puts the backbeat really, like, resonates with me. And, and, obviously how hard he hits and, like, you know, I was definitely emulating hitting this hard when I was playing with Alanis in the early 2000s. And the way he just is able to sit back. I mean, it's just... Uh, what do you say? It's just like no nonsense all the time. Yeah. And I love the fact that he goes to the ride symbol for the verse. Right? His feel is just incredible. For playing so hard, his feel is just amazing. It's funny, too, because the original Swing House, which used to be on Coenga, anybody that doesn't live in L.A., this doesn't make any sense to them, but the original <laughs> Swing House was on Coenga, and that was just like a regular rehearsal space, and they would come rehearse there. So sometimes they'd be there, and they'd all show up in their, their black SUVs, and it was always like, oh, man. There they are, you know, or they were at Cole rehearsal. Was this is where that was this really shitty, uh, divey place to rehearse? Um, but they would rehearse there, uh, and you just, you know, they just be, they just be there. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. Like for me, like you know, yeah, I don't know, just get to get back to Brad. It was just like, uh, you know, for me, especially like I always wanted to retain like the the kind of touch that I d had developed from playing jazz. But then I also wanted to be able to hit that hard and get a good sound mm -hmm. and be able to do both. And, you know, Brad just, he hits so hard, but he gets an amazing sound. Yeah. And just is able to do that for a full show and make it feel good. And I just, I, that doesn't happen that often. I don't think, you know, yeah. All right, well, let's, I always want to give people the opportunity to do a few of their their uh, honorable mentions. Because, okay. again, I know it's so hard to not mention every album you love. Right. But um, So there's uh, Three Quartets with Steve Gadd. Oh, right. I mean, to me, even to this day, that's my favorite Gadd recording. I'll, I'll be brief. My okay. One of my favorite things about Gadd, besides all the obvious things that everybody says, mm -hmm. is that he can play on a jazz record like a full-on swing record like this and still use that thuddy dead drum sound and it just works it's just he's so on fire on that record it's crazy yeah which which uh, which song do you want to play go with the first one go with the first tune okay quartet yeah. number one yeah Even if you wouldn't have told me this was Steve, it's like you can automatically tell. Right. But yeah, super dead. Mm -hmm. 
so good. Yeah. This came out in 81 for everyone. Yeah, there's some crazy moments in this record. I like it, too, because, you know, he does play all the Gad stuff, but then he plays a lot of stuff that you don't hear him do just because it's, you know, he's improvising and he's just letting it fly. It's so heavy, and except it swings, and and it's very light at the same time. The touch is light, you know? in with that would it be the and of yeah the of the of one yeah Let's do Matt Cameron because right, let's do it because Cameron. Hey. I mean, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he is someone that I am tr- in the process of getting on the podcast. Oh man! All right. So yeah, which which song do you want to play? Oh man, Mailman. Okay, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is his riff too. Oh, really? I think so. I mean, similar qualities of, of like what gets me. It's like the, just sitting back on this. Yeah. Like... And then he has, you know, all those weird angular fills that's just like, I don't know where that's coming from. Playing this, this heavy and this slow with this much space is actually extremely hard, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. He's just got such a unique sound and playing style, mm-hmm. you know. Well, during that part, he was doing that open hi-hat on the on just the quarter notes, and he was still doing all mm-hmm. this stuff around it, mm-hmm. but he's very conscious of having that be maintaining. Yeah, and he'll sneak in little little random odd time you know yeah he's he's got little he's got he's it's got like flavor right apparently apparently he's like a jazz geek he's like an elvin jones geek (laughs) 
got to get that bell at the end. I mean, it is the you 90s. Gotta... <laughs> you can't not do that. <laughs> He's not a the, fool. Yeah, the bell and the Keplinger snares. Well, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just, I, I, you know, stylistically, he's just so unique. Um, just the way he plays and, and his sound. So I just, yeah. All right. Well, um, I do want to give you a chance to talk about your website, and I want to talk about your online courses. Uh, please, I'm going to give you the floor, and then I will stop taking up your time. So. Cool. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. This is fun. Yeah, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, every, you know, I have a few courses. I have uh, the snare drum Bible. The mm-hmm. snare sound bible this is all about getting snare sounds uh improve your groove which you mentioned and then introduction to recording drums uh all like on-demand courses and then on april 19th i'm gonna start my second six-week live course uh so and that's all on recording drums it's uh it's a two-hour class once a week for six weeks and it's from the bottom to the top like basically how I do things. Um, I did one before and it was, it was pretty cool. So I'm going to offer it again and, uh, it's good. You can sit in your studio and ask me questions and learn stuff. (laughs) So someone who is a very novice when it comes to that and would be super intimidated to talk to someone like you, would you still recommend they get on and hang out? I I personally think it's for anybody because it's starting from like, you know, I mean, I start like I didn't know Jack about it, and I'm all self-taught. So, yeah, it it starts from there. Um, and uh, you know, you can any all this stuff is on my website, blairsinta.com, and you can see all the details there. So, I uh, thanks. I appreciate you having me on, Ben. Yeah. Yeah, man. Thanks for. Uh, I'm not sure if I'll keep this in, but uh, we had. I'm on tour, and so I, we had quite the uh, network connection. You were a sweetheart about. Uh, working out with me on that so I appreciate you yeah. being patient and uh, changing good. schedules to fit my time so you're awesome in many ways and um, I will talk to you later man this was a, right. this was a big pleasure have a good tour dude thanks man bye All right, bye and that's the show if you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews do that it helps more people find the show, so it'll get bigger and better, and hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'll be an OG listener that can brag to all your friends. Anyways, why don't you go and check us out at BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on all the socials. Just search for Big Fat Snare Drum, and you will find us. The show is edited in part using Isotope RX Audio Editor. It's amazing, so go check that out at Isotope.com. And thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for the theme music. Bye!